When it comes to the congregation, there is nothing that is more precious or beautiful than a body united together, serving the Lord. And on the other hand, there's nothing that saddens the heart of God more, perhaps, than when there's division in a church. That's what James addresses in chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, when conflict invades the church. James chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your, your neighbor? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the congregation, for the body of Christ, for how you have established the church. And you have said, Lord Jesus, at the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to your word today. Pray that you would teach us, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. I read a story about a, a father who heard some commotion going on in the backyard. And he looked outside and saw his daughter and several of her friends in a very heated discussion. And so he proceeded to go out and intervene in the situation. And as he came out the door, his, his daughter said, Don't worry, Dad, we're just playing church. <laughs> I'm not sure what kind of a church that family was a part of, but if that's what a church is like, we are in deep, deep trouble. As you read through the New Testament epistles, you will notice that in the first century church, there were congregations that knew what conflict was all about. 
And maybe the best example is the church at Corinth. Chapter 3, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? And by the second letter, by the time Paul wrote his second letter to the Corinthians, things didn't seem to have gotten any better. Second Corinthians 12, verse 20, Paul says, For I am afraid that perhaps when I come to you, I may find you to be not what I wish, and may be found by you not what you wish. <laughs> he had something to say to them. And he said that perhaps there will be, and look at the list of things he's concerned about, perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. Boy, I hope that doesn't describe many congregations today. That is a list of things that causes great harm to the body of Christ. It must not have been much different among those to whom James writes, because he begins this passage of Scripture by asking this question, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? So evidently there were quarrels and conflicts going on, and as he writes them, he says, what is causing all this? I wonder how they would have answered. I think some of them would have said, well, if it weren't for Joel or Fred, things would be wonderful around here. It's easy to point your finger this way, when you're pointing your finger this way, there's a few fingers pointing this way, right? There's, there's always the tendency to say, well, it's, it's those guys over there. So how does James answer that question? What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? It shouldn't surprise us that James mentions here the three enemies of our soul. The flesh the world, and the devil. And that's what he talks about in this section here. The first thing he says is that conflict comes because of the battle within us. Did you know that in the life of every believer there is a battle that goes on? <laughs> there is a battle that goes on daily, isn't there? And James gives us this picture in verse 1. Uh, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? And he answers it then, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Interesting way to put it. Waging war in your members. Now, that word obviously translated waging wars, is a, it's a military term. It is written in the present tense, so it emphasizes that this is an ongoing battle that we face every day. Every week, every month, year after year, our bodies are a battleground. And James describes our enemy then in verse 1 as our pleasures or 
our desires. Is not the source of these quarrels and conflicts your pleasures that wage war in your members? Now, that's a very interesting word, the word translated pleasures. It's the Greek word hedonon, from which we get hedonism. Hedonism. What is hedonism? Hedonism is the philosophy that pleasure is the chief goal in life. It is the philosophy that you do what feels good to you. You only go around once in life, right? So live for all the gusto you can. And that is a very popular philosophy, isn't it? Do what feels good. doesn't matter what anybody else says or anyone else thinks. You just live for your pleasure. I find it interesting that James doesn't mention here any specific things that we might desire because there, the list could be very long, couldn't it? Because there's many things that, that we might desire. And he says then in verse 2, You lust and do not have. You are envious and cannot obtain. So for some it could be power that they desire. I want to be one who has power. Or maybe it's possessions that they desire. Maybe it's a certain position in life. And so all of us battle with with some kind of self-centered desires. And that's why there's problems in relationships. There are conflicts among us because there are battles within us. That's the first thing James says. What is the source of conflicts among you? There's a battle within you. That battle within you causes you to lust after, desire certain things, and that creates conflict. Verse 2, he says, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Arcant Hughes says the old nature with its self-seeking focus on personal pleasure battles against the new nature and selfish pleasure-seeking dominates. This in turn fosters a self-focus which naturally diminishes the importance of others and enthrones one's pleasures as the goal in life. This brings relational war with those around us. I remember a story about Abraham Lincoln who was walking down the street with his two sons. And they were just arguing back and forth. And, and someone asked him, said, Abe, what's, what's the matter? He said, the, the, what is the matter is the matter with everybody else in the world. He said, I have three walnuts and they each want two. There's those desires that create conflict in relationships. I came across an interesting um, illustration in one of the books, uh, illustration books I have. Nine great ideas, all mine. Here they are. Number one, my idea of visitation, everybody come to see me. My idea of sympathy, everyone Suffering with me. My idea of sinner, the man for whom I have great dislike. 
My idea of a meek man, the man who yields to me. My idea of a contentious man, the man who takes issue with me. My idea of a wise man, the man who listens to me. My idea of unity, everyone agreeing with me. My idea of cooperation, everyone working with me. How about this one? My idea of a good sermon, one that fits and hits everybody but me. That's the flesh, isn't it? That's our sinful nature. And so you can see why the battle within us leads to battles with others. When we are self-centered, it hinders our relationships. We're not very fun to be around. That's the kind of way that we live. But James also says that the battle within us has an impact on our relationship with God. When we are controlled by selfish desires, we attempt to get God to satisfy those selfish desires, and this affects even our prayer life. Look at verse 3. He says, you ask, and you don't receive. And he gives the answer why. Because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So we want to get God involved in this. Here's my selfish desire. Here's the pleasure I want. Can you give this to me? Okay, wouldn't that be great? What a, what a perversion of prayer. Asking God to fulfill our own sinful, selfish desires. That you may spend it on your pleasures. The word spend uh, carries the idea of wasting or squandering. And interestingly, it's used in Luke 15 to describe what the prodigal son did with his father's estate. Remember that? Give me my share. Father gave it to him. He went out and wasted it. The same word that James uses here. One author says this of James' audience, they do not ask for things in order for God's goodness and grace to be magnified or for the sake of his glory and honor. They do not ask in order to be able to fulfill his perfect will, but to fulfill their own sinful and selfish will. So we have conflict among us because of the battle within us. Secondly, James says, conflict comes because of the battle that we face with the world. Would you agree that we live in a world that pressures us to conform to its way of thinking and acting and living? We certainly do, don't we? And because we want to be accepted, is it easy to conform? We don't want to be different, right? We don't want to be different. Do you remember when you were growing up, when you were in high school? Did you conform to certain things as a high school student? <laughs> and some of them, you know, it's not like everything we do is, is, is bad, right? I remember when I was in high school, long hair was in style. I don't know if that's sinful. I can't really do that anymore. But back then, we had long hair, and over our ears, we wore bell bottoms. You kids have no idea what that is, do you? And leisure suits. 
Remember those? <laughs> they were awesome, we thought. We looked a little weird, but I can't say it was, it was sinful. But there are other ways that we can conform to the world, ways that do not honor God because they are ways where we are not living in accordance with the truth of His Word. People neither believe nor live by the absolute truth of Scripture. In other words, they live without a, a biblical worldview. I'm sure you've heard that talked about, having a biblical worldview. I read a, a interesting results of a George Barna study, recent study. Although seven out of ten Americans consider themselves to be Christian, he says just 6% actually possess a biblical worldview. That is alarming. He said the number of American adults holding a biblical worldview has declined by 50% over the past quarter of a century. Regarding the youngest adult generation, those from 18 to 29, what percentage of those people do you think have a biblical worldview? According to this study, 2%. 2%. You think the world has had an influence on our culture, on, on our people that live today? It is shocking. It is alarming how conformed to the world's way of thinking and acting and living is, is so, so dominant. And God has made it clear, hasn't he, both Old and New Testament, that we as believers are not to follow the ways of the world. Leviticus 18 verse 3 says, You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you used to live, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. New Testament, 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And so the warning is very clear, but the pull of the world can be so powerful because it reinforces the desires of our sinful hearts, doesn't it? Our sinful hearts say, I want this. And the world says, go for it. You need it. You won't be happy until you get it. And don't let anybody tell you you are wrong to go after that. I mean, that's the message that we are constantly being given. Just live who you are, right? If we're going to live who we are in our sinful flesh, our sinful nature, it's no wonder there's so much evil in the world today. And the world says, good boy, that's the way. That's the way to do it. Put yourself first. No one else is going to put you first. You better, you better just do it yourself. What happens when we adopt the world's way of thinking and living? James is pretty firm here. He tells us that we end up committing spiritual adultery. Verse 4, he calls them adulteresses. He says, you adulteresses, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's pretty firm, isn't it? Pretty strong. But that, there's the alternative, right? Are you going to be a friend of the world? Or are you going to be a friend of God? Because you can't be both. It's one or the other. And if you choose to be a friend of this world's evil system of values and living, then you put yourself in opposition to God. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You see, when we make a commitment to follow Jesus, we become his bride. He is the bridegroom. We are the bride. And when you get married, you you commit yourself to be faithful to that one person, right? You did that. You married people, right? When you stood before the altar, you made that commitment. And if you become the friend of someone else other than your wife or your husband... James tells us what that is. So when we commit our lives to Jesus, we become his bride. We are called to be faithful to him alone. But if we become friends of the world, we've broken that vow that we have made to him. And that has an impact on our lives in many ways. If we don't have a right relationship with God, we have no hope of winning the battle against selfishness within us. Because it is not a battle that we can win in our flesh. And if the selfishness within us is encouraged by the world, we are going to live in conflict. So conflict comes from the battle within us. It comes from the battle with the world as well. And then thirdly, it comes from the battle with the devil. There's our third enemy. The flesh, the world, and the devil. James doesn't spend a lot of time in this section describing the devil's work, but it's clear that that he is involved in our conflicts. If you look at verse 7, the devil is to be resisted. Why resisted? Because he is always seeking to attack us, to attack the congregation, to attack the church, to attack the body of Christ, like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He wants to bring conflict. He wants to bring division to the body of Christ, and he will do anything he can to bring conflict. We just went through a year plus of trouble in our world, and guess what? There is division in many congregations as a result. Because Satan has brought division and conflict. He doesn't care what it is. As long as something can divide the body of Christ. He'll use anger. We read from Ephesians 4. Be angry and yet do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. That's one of the ways that he divides is with anger. Someone says something to you or does something to you or doesn't do what you want them to do and you are upset and you don't deal with it. That is opening the door. The devil's influence in your life. That brings division in the body. He'll use bitterness to divide the body. Hebrews 12, 15, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness 
springing up causes trouble, and by it, many be defiled. There are people that are so bitter today, and they are spewing it out on social media. That defiles. It defiles many. How about false teaching? The devil wants to bring false teaching into a congregation so that there are two camps, two groups, anything he can do to divide That is what he will do. In Ephesians 6.12, Paul says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And yet that's what people make it. They make it an issue of flesh and blood. It's people battling people. Who is our real enemy? It is the evil one. And there are many people that are allowing Satan to divide their congregation, looking at it as a person-against-person thing. When Satan is behind it, he must be resisted because he will, he will divide. So what do we do? How do we prevent conflict from invading the church? Paul has answered the question, what's the source? There's the sources. He gives three of them. So... Are we just stuck? What do we do? Let me suggest to you two things. Instead of submitting to our selfish desires, we need to submit ourselves to God. And that is something that that James mentions repeatedly here. Look at verse 7. Submit, therefore, to God. Verse 8. Draw near to God. Verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of God. And when you humble yourself in the presence of God, look at what verse 6 says. He gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. There's the solution. Humbling ourselves before God. Because when you humble yourself before God, you will be able to humble yourself before the body of Christ, before others. For those that you might have some issue with. Instead of submitting to our selfish desires, we humble ourselves before God. The second thing James says here, instead of taking our sin lightly, we need to repent of it. The sad thing about the people to whom James was writing, they didn't seem to be bothered by their sin. They were fighting and quarreling with one another, and it's like they didn't seem to care. And notice how, how firm he is with them. Verses 8 and 9, he says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And then verse 9, when I read this during the text, did it kind of strike you? He says, Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Wow, what a killjoy, huh? What is wrong with James? Man, mourn and weep and be miserable. What's he saying? He's saying if you are going to quit this quarreling and fighting among you, you need to have a genuine sorrow for your sin. Mourn over it. Weep over it. Repent of it. That's what he's saying. He's saying, 
you know, you people don't seem to be too bothered by all this. And it's time that you are. It's time that you deal with your sin. I think of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul emphasizes the importance of sorrow over sin that leads to repentance. 2 Corinthians 7, 8, he says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while, I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. There is a sorrow that is according to the will of God. It is sorrow over sin. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. You know what? There are a lot of people that don't want to have any sorrow. They don't want to come to church and feel guilty or have any sorrow over their sin. I want to go out of that door just skipping down the road. Well, you know what? We first need to deal with our sin. Right? I remember a pastor who said, When the Word of God is preached in its truth and purity, there's often three stages. First, people get mad. You don't want to hear that. And then the Word of God brings conviction of sin by the Holy Spirit, and they get sad. There's sorrow. And then they embrace the good news of salvation in Jesus, and then they get glad. Most people don't want the first few steps. Just tickle my ears. Tell me what I want to hear. Make me feel good. Tell me how nice I am and how wonderful I am and how God must be so happy that you're on His team. That is not the message of Scripture. And I think what James was hoping for as he wrote these words is that people would recognize that conflict within their fellowship was something that needed to be dealt with, to be sorry for what they had done. So is there someone that you are in conflict with today? Does the conflict grieve you to the point where you are willing to to deal with it? There were two missionaries in Korea who disagreed with each other. It was just a matter of of policy. It was not an issue of doctrine or anything like that. And they left the conference a little upset with each other. And and they got back to their places of service and neither of them had peace. Because they knew that there was something in that relationship that needed to be dealt with. And finally, one of them could stand it no longer. He hopped on the train, drove a hundred miles met his brother in Christ face to face. They embraced each other. They wept. And their relationship was restored. And other believers in that region heard of what God had done. And that started to bring about in in, in their lives a a sorrow over their sin. and, And relationships were restored. And guess what the result was? Revival, exactly. Because the world started to say, you know what, there's something about these people. 
They must love each other. When the world sees a unity in the body of Jesus Christ, that is a testimony because there is so much disunity in the world today. Now maybe you're in the midst of a conflict that appears to be so deep that there's no hope of reconciliation. Let me give you an example of reconciliation that was very deep in the New Testament, Jew and Gentile. If you're familiar with with the New Testament, you know that there was there was no love between those groups. How were they united? They were united through the great reconciler, Jesus. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2, starting at verse 13. He says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing law, dividing wall. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through what? The cross. That's where reconciliation takes place between sinful man, and a holy God. It's through the cross. And that is the only place where genuine reconciliation can take place between people. It's through Jesus. Our world is a mess. And it's a mess because they've rejected Jesus. That's the only solution to a divided nation, a divided world. It's Jesus, because he is the one that reckons us, reconciles us as sinful human beings into a right relationship with the Holy God. And when you have a right relationship with the Holy God, you experience oneness. You experience unity. And friends, that is what we need. We need to humble ourselves before God. Humble ourselves before our brothers and sisters. See what God can do. See what God can do to restore relationships that are broken by conflict. He is the great reconciler. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it grieves your heart when there is division within the church. And James addresses this so clearly, so powerfully. Help us, Lord, to understand, first of all, that the need that we have to be reconciled with you and how that makes a difference in our relationships with one another. May you do your work in our midst today for the glory, the praise of your name. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.